medical department only to go to the bench and we are more than a dozen. We don't train, we only recover. That's a, that's a situation. Preparation, hard work, confidence in overcoming those difficult moments. Today we still outside Liverpool and we are going to the first part of the medical test. Welcome to this Football Medicine and Performance podcast. I'm Andrew Shafiq, a doctor in London and your host for today's podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Balsam. Dr. Paul Balsam is a sports scientist and UEFA Pro Qualify coach with over 20 years of international experience at the highest level of FIFA and UEFA football match activities. He has been a member of the backroom staff at Leicester City since 2008 and King Power-owned club OH Leuven in Belgium since 2017. He is also performance manager for the Swedish national men's team. Paul is head of the UEFA Fitness for Football Advisory Group and has a special interest in how technology and data can be used to enhance performance. Thank you for joining us today, Paul. Today we're nice to be here, Andrew. Thanks, Paul. Great to have you here. Similarly to our previous podcasts, uh, just to start off, do you mind just following on from the intro, telling us a little bit about your journey today within within the game, if that's okay? Yeah, sure, no problem. Um, I was actually born in the UK, although I've lived in Sweden for the last uh, 30 odd years now. Um, grew up as a youngster in Torquay, um, watched Torquay United, a fanatic supporter with, with my dad and, and my grandfather. Uh, so I had a passion for football from an early age. Um, actually had one foot in the door at Loughborough University to become a civil engineer. Um, at the last minute, uh, changed, uh, changed courses to, to study sports science at um, Cardiff Met University, South Glamorgan Institute of Higher Education, as it was then. From there, spent three years studying sports science, uh, two years in, in America at Springfield College, um, and then moved to Sweden in 1989 uh, to take my PhD in, in exercise physiology, um, looking at intermittent exercise with uh, always with football in mind, uh, really trying to get a, uh, an understanding of, of the, how the body is, is reacting physiologically during the type of demands that are, are placed on the body during a football game. From there, I started work with the, uh, with the Swedish national team and, and um, uh, I've been here now with, a, with the men's team for 22 years, did some work with the women's team uh, initially. And then since 2002, I've also been um, consulting with, with English clubs. I started with, uh, with Bolton Wanderers in 2002 with, with um, Sam Allardyce's manager, Southampton, um, and, and then Leicester City. So every now and then I, I pop across back, back home, as it were, to, to the UK to, to do some consultancy work with, uh, with some English clubs. That's brilliant, and it's safe to say you've got a range of experiences there based on the on the clubs and the journey that you've mentioned. Um, we know that, that kind of you've you've mentioned that physiology, excess physiology, is kind of your your primary area, as such. But do you mind telling us the the importance of uh, performance analysts within the the MDT in football, and trying to explain a little bit the difference between the data analysts and the performance analysts for our listeners? Sure. Um... I mean, I had a double role with, with the Swedish Association, as, as I guess many practitioners did in, in the early days, um, you know, even at clubs where 
um, I guess we used to call them match analysts, weren't, weren't um, as common as they are today. And I guess there were people, I always think of, of, of way back then, is we were people with a sort of, I'm not sure whether I say technical competence or technical and interest in technology. We were able to work with computers and we were able to um, increase the efficiency of workflows when, when we were analyzing games. We were able to take footage from games, sometimes filming ourselves and able to use technology to analyze those a lot quicker and in a lot more detail than had been done before. Um, that's so. So I had a double role as a, as a physiologist and, and a match analyst up until actually 2018 uh, with the Swedish team. But but then, I mean, the workflows were increasing. The the amount of data that were, were available to us also increased. And and then we brought in an analyst to work specifically um, with with the national team. At Leicester, when I was there in 2008, we had one again match analyst. Where was now? There are there are teams. So so there's a you know, the, it's not a, it's a team behind the team. So you, you have a team of, of performance analysts um, working very co closely with the coaching staff where, of course, they still need a high level of technical competence, but they also need a high level of football, football knowledge. So, so there's, a, there's been a shift between you know, just being that person who, who's more technically advanced to now also having a, a high level of football knowledge and, and working very, very closely with, with the coaching department. Um, you, you get specialists now looking at the opposition. They may be looking at data from training. They may have performance analysts only concentrating on set pieces. Uh, maybe uh, someone very uh, aligned with the coaches on, on their own team's performance. So, so the you know there's been a very the job description of a performance analyst ten years ago to today has, has changed uh, changed dramatically. And then also you mentioned sort of data analyst or, or the analytics side of things. Again, you know, some of the top clubs have teams of, of data analysts um, really trying to, you know, in, in, in the best scenario, trying to uh, answer uh, with data um, questions posed by the, um, by the coaches. Uh, because at the end of the day, that, that's what it's all about. We're, we're trying to gain insights. So, so it's, you know, we're not trying to answer questions that are uninteresting for the coaches. So, you know, the big clubs today, they'll have teams of performance analysts and they'll have teams of, of data analysts. And they'll also have coaches with a, with a, who have maybe started their career as performance analysts and, and gone into the coaching. So, so they're actually now um, coaches with, with an interest or a specialist in, in performance analysis. That's great. And... It's safe to say we can see the, the, the niche element and you've mentioned obviously the team behind the team and how certain members are looking at certain unique areas. We know you have an interest in data such and we know uh, kind of AI, artificial intelligence is, is coming more and more of a thing, not just within sport but in uh, other sectors. Where do you think data will be used in future to, to enhance performance? I think first uh, you mentioned artificial intelligence and I know a lot of people get twitchy when we start talking about big data and artificial intelligence. So I think we, we need to be a little bit careful what, what terms we use. Um, you know, is, is it big data? Is it data? Is it artificial intelligence? Is it, it machine learning? But I mean, that's, that's not the point. The point is there is now a lot of data. There's, we, we get a lot of data from training. We lot of get it from games, our own performance, from opposition. We get a lot of data from... Um, when we're recruiting players, so now we have access to, you know, to 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 data from players in in second divisions in in you know small countries, and 
one of the big advancements there is is now we're able to to get tracking data, for example, from from television footage. So whereas before, you know, what what the the data we we could access was very limited. Now there's all sorts of data sources coming in uh, or available. Um, and what we then might need to try to do, of course, is 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 to make sense of this data and and. You know, I think the, I usually talk about three steps. First, we need to build an infrastructure to manage all the data coming in. Um, so that's for our own players and then also players we might be looking to recruit. Once that infrastructure is in place, um, then we need to see how we can make our workflows, our current workflows more efficient, and then maybe um, look to add new workflows with, with all the data sources coming in. And then, and then once those two are in place, then of course we can and should be looking for, for insights that, you know, it's not been possible uh, with the naked eye. So, so now we're really using the, these, um, you know, these specialists, these data analysts to, to to make sense of all these data, all this data that's coming in. That's brilliant. And uh, I know you did an article with with Catapult, and back in the article you mentioned six specific maneuvers uh, that players make in a typical match, and you looked into that to give you a bit of a better idea of where players put stress on particular muscles or muscle groups or areas of their body. Do you mind telling us a little bit about this kind of movement profile and the theory behind it and how it's been applied? Yeah, it sort of grew from a frustration from, from myself and many practitioners where um, the, the current metrics that were being used in, in, with player tracking, we didn't feel were specific enough to, to football. Um, a, a lot of them came from Australian rules football. They were developed in, in Australia where there are high volumes of high speed running. Whereas as we know football, there are a lot of uh, what we call micro movements. So a lot of, a lot of very uh, movements with a high intensity, but a low speed. And, and we didn't feel that the metrics currently being used were able to, to, to capture those. So, um, we weren't able really to report uh, the intensity of a of a training session, for example, uh, accurately enough that the, that, for example, the coach would understand. Okay, this this was a, a high intensity or high load or or, or et cetera, et cetera. So, together with Catapult and a, and, a, and a colleague, Chris Barnes, we we set about trying to to develop some some more, as we called them, football specific uh, metrics. And actually, we we we. We found a way of uh, of dividing all movements into the three major categories. You mentioned six, but we started with three. So basically, anything that's done at a low intensity, and and we know that about over half of the game, so half of the ninety minutes, if we take a game as an example, will be performed at a, a low intensity, where, where we can say, okay, that's fine. It's low intensity. We don't need to worry about the the, the load for them. That leaves us with two categories. One of which is. Um, we call steady state running so so where the players as he's started he's come over the acceleration period and now they're moving at a what we call a steady state with a with a stride with a cadence that's some form of uniformity to it um and and those two were fine there was nothing too new but it was the third one really which was was the which was a new one and that's we we call it dy- dynamic intensity so we we now wanted to look at all movements where a high intensity. So it could be a high intensity and high speed, but it could also be a high intensity and a low speed. So all these very short, sharp movements that we talk about, uh, as you mentioned, load on the muscles, but also sort of a high metabolic uh, cost. And, and it's still early days. Um, I don't think it's really reached the, 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 the masses, the, the people who are working have, the, have access to the data with the catapult devices, but we, we, we're quite 
um, um, we're looking forward to sort of the future. And, and these won't replace current metrics. They're, they're there to complement um, the, the metrics that are currently being used and, and very, very specific to, to football. Thank you. That's very insightful, I think, for, for the listeners to hear that and to look, kind of watch this space for a little bit more in regards to that work. We, we know that you've obviously worked in, in club and in international football with Leicester City, uh, consulting for other clubs and the Swedish national team. What are the main differences between working within club and international uh, football from a performance element? And what are the lessons that you've learned from those? I think the first one is, is an obvious one, and maybe it wasn't so obvious in the beginning, but it's that, you know, in the national team, we loan players. We don't own players. We loan players from the club. And, and what's happened over the years is, is if we put the, the player in the centre, so we put the player in focus, then it's a win-win situation. If we working with the national team or in co- close contact with, with practitioners working in the, uh, in the club environment, so that, you know, as I say, we loan a player, so we want to know as much about that, the player's um, physical status before they arrive with us for, for a camp, an international camp. And then we want to send that player back to the clubs with as much information um, as possible so that they can be, um, so they can go back into the training and, and, and the match and the match fixtures with, with the club as, as make that as transparent as possible. And that's sports science data. So obviously all the, as much loading data, but also of course any medical uh, things that come up during the um, during the time with us, and I think one of the one of the lessons learned is that you know it's it's not it's not for us to 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 try to to try to change behaviours um, with players when they're with us. Of course, we can have conversations with them, but we have to respect that they you know they 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 they're owned by the clubs, and and um, I think initially we we maybe. In, we're talking 20 years ago. Maybe send them back with some, some, you know, running programs and, and some, some suggestions. But, but obviously, that, you know, that that's not the way to do it. The way is to is to speak directly with the clubs if we have any concerns. One of the concerns we may have is, for example, a player coming to us who's who's not playing regularly for their team. So, you know, occasionally we we will talk with practitioners to find ways of how we can, you know, make sure the intensity of that player remains. Um, at a level so when they come to us that uh, they can jump straight into an international fixture so so I think the key is really and, and what we've seen is is better communication um, with between the sort of practitioners working at the international level and then practitioners working in the clubs. That's great and we, we know that you're head of the, the UEFA Fitness for Football Advisory Group. I think listeners will be very interested to, to hear a little bit more about that so do you mind telling us about kind of some of your work uh, with UEFA today, yeah, probably um, you know it's it's still all quite new, uh, relatively new. In, in fact, I've been a member of the of the, the group for the last ten years. But but what's happened in the last six months has been very very inspiring, and and it's it's really uh, revolves around the, the the current project is the the fitness and and health content of the coach education programs. And, and that's from the C level, which is the, the entry level, all the way up to the pro level. And, and this is with all the um, all the national associations in Europe. And 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 we've changed, so, so it's not UEFA um, dictating to the national association. This is what the content of 
um, the fitness and health contents of your coach education program should be, but to work together with them to, to build us a consensus so that we can come with recommendations and, and minimal requirements. So we're basically building uh, frameworks for them to work from. Um, but what we see, and, and, and one of the big things that's, that's changed over the 10 years is that now we're putting a lot of emphasis on, on the entry-level coaching diplomas. So UEFA have just launched a, a C license, for example, where all the coaching methods, so we're using blended uh, coach education methods. So it's not just classroom. It's not just on the field. We're trying to mix. We're trying to introduce online meeting um, webinars and, and, and Zoom meetings and team meetings and, and, and everything to really um, uh, change the, the way that we are, are educating our coaches. And, and our role within the fitness advisory group is, is then to make sure that the, the fitness and health content is in, in line. You know, 2020, we, we know a lot more obviously now than we did. 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, and, and also trying to change the, the image of fitness for health. It should be something that you know, should be viewed very positively, um, certainly at the lower, uh, the lower programs, the C and the B license, as much integration as possible. So we're, we're not isolating the physical component. We're making it as integrated as possible as we then move up to the A and the pro license. Of course, um, some of the performance work will need to be individualized. Um, and really trying to get that balance, but but most importantly, to get associations to 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 discuss um, to discuss this with each other, to find out uh, best practice, examples of best practice, and to share those. So so again, putting the player in focus, putting the the, the fitness and the health of the player in focus, and also making sure what we deliver is delivered at the right level. So the content at the C level should reflect the coaches that are attending that course, and then of course the players that they in turn will be working with, as of course when we when we move up to the pro level, you know, we're, we're not teaching a, a pro level coach, you know, he doesn't need to know, he doesn't need a three year degree in physiology or, or sports science, but he needs to be able to work with his team of experts. And again, that's that's change, a changing landscape. So we need to make sure the content of what we, what we, uh, produce at the at the pro level also re reflects the coaches that we're working with. Really interesting and very very player focused and and kind of coach focused. I'd, we know that you you've mentioned previously that um, a lot of your philosophy or some of what you've you've learned and taken through the years you've you've learned from from rugby and from uh, from Leicester Tigers and I think it'd be interesting to to just finish on you know discussing some of these experiences what you've learned and what you've transferred from. Um, your colleagues in rugby and what you've learned from them into into football. Yeah, I, I don't think we need to say specifically rugby. I think um, yes, we we did one of the things we did in in, in the early days at Leicester is we you know, we wanted to collaborate. We had a very successful rugby team on our doorstep. We had um, you know, we had a team of practitioners there who were who were very very open to share ideas and and. Especially in the early days, it was it was very successful, and, and for me, almost a, a no-brainer that you know why shouldn't we be discussing with each other best practice? We, you know, we realised we were working in different sports, but of course there are a lot of cross cross uh, areas that cross over. And in fact, uh, only a couple of days ago, I, I got a message from 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 one of the guys that we 
we worked with in the early days, and, and we, so we're still 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 discussing things. But I don't think we should limit it to rugby. I think uh, you know, I think we we one of the interesting things is is a project I've, I've been involved in in, in in recent months is, is the development in speed um, in football and. You know, we, we may shy away from athletic coaches trying to come into football to tell us you know, how to develop a speed, but actually they have so much knowledge, you know, we, we should be listening to them and, and maybe we should be asking them to, to educate our, our fitness coaches. So, so maybe it's not, you know, maybe not the right mold to bring them onto the grass, but for them to work together with our coaches on the grass. And, you know, this can be done from an early age all the way up to a, uh, you know, to, to senior level. And, and certainly this has changed my opinion about uh, how we may develop speed based on some very, very uh, long and, and, and uh, deep conversations with, with track and field coaches. Um, we, we visited a Formula One team and uh, we discussed how they use uh, data, for example, in you know, the, the amount of data that they're processing you know, for every second of their race, there's so much data coming in and then how they interact with the driver and how they use the data and how they use it live and retrospectively to debrief. So I think there's a huge, um, huge area where, where we in football can, can uh, you know, can open up our doors to, to, to show people what we're doing, but equally that we can, we can learn from other sports. That's great. Paul, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, listeners, I'll put up the links for the papers and the articles mentioned. Uh, if you enjoyed today, please subscribe to the FMPA on our Spotify and SoundCloud accounts, where you can reach all of our podcasts. Alternatively, our podcasts are also available for free via the podcast section of the FMPA website. You've been listening to the Football Medicine and Performance Podcast. Have a great day.